0: This podcast was recorded on November 7th, 2016, the day before the election. In the coming weeks, we'll hear Debbie Millman engage in some post-election conversations. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com.
1: For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast,
0: Debbie Millman talks with designer Kira Alexandra about what to do when you need extras for a video shoot. I called every single person I knew and I said, what are you doing on a cold November morning Tuesday at 4 a.m.? Want to get on a bus and not get paid and come up to the woods and walk around?
1: Here's Debbie Millman. If I had to design a career in design, it might look like Kira Alexandra's. She's graduated from the Rhode Island School of Design that went to work in New York for none other than Tibor Kalman at M & Company. Then she worked as a designer and director at MTV and became creative director of Sundance TV. Eventually, she struck out on her own and called her design shop employee number one. Now, she's a partner in a firm called Work Order, whose A-list clients include HBO, The New York Times, and Kodak. They also run a music and art festival called Day for Night. She's here to fill in some of the details of what she's done and what she's doing. Kara Alexandra, welcome to Design Matters.
0: Thank you, Debbie.
1: Kerry, your grandfather was architect Vladimir Osipov, widely considered to be the master of Hawaii modern architecture. I read that he kept a notebook with a running list of things he did on every day of the year. So, for example, every February 4th, he would weigh himself and record it on the same page year after
0: year. Do you do anything like that as well? I don't. I'm not very methodical about tracking myself. It is a very clear and favorite memory that he did. And actually, some friends of mine made an app in honor of that practice. So his version was the classic day page desk calendar. And yes, he did weigh himself once a year until, I don't know, 30, 40 years in, he said, nah, we're not going to bother because he was always the same weight. <laughs> really? But, 40 years he weighed the same every year. Yeah, he's pretty consistent. But what was nice about that was he would track. I mean, this is now that we have apps and devices for such things, but it was really unique to think about what was happening on the same day year after year. So he would track wars, he would track dinner parties, uh, what he was working on. So it had a really wide mix of, you know, from serious to perhaps frivolous. But it was just really nice to see sort of a time track in a non-analog way. And what I like thinking about from such practices is how do you kind of mash up things that you wouldn't normally have come in contact. So if you think about A dinner party that you had 20 years ago and then a hike you took or uh, a project you're working on, you start to see new connections in new ways that you might not otherwise. Were you too close? Very. (laughs) I think I had the privilege of skipping a generation. You know, it's kind of always nice to be the grandchild so you don't have the pressure of being the child and not have really any restrictions. So when he would work, I would work with him, not knowing that that seemed maybe out of bounds. In what way? When he was starting to sort of sit down to sketch out an egress or how to work within a confined space, I'd offer my opinions, I'd give him my sketch as well and say, well, I think this is the way you could go about it. And And did he he take your advice? He did. He would take it very seriously. And then we'd go back and forth and back and forth, which is probably why I like partnerships. I like the back and forth.
1: Did you ever consider becoming an architect based on your exposure to
0: working with him? Too much pressure. (laughs) To follow in his footsteps? (laughs) Did you spend a lot of time in Hawaii with him? Um, Every summer when I was little. Where did you grow up? Outside of Washington, D.C., sort of reluctantly. My parents relocated there from San Francisco temporarily. It was an 18-month assignment that my father had to help the government with mass transit systems during the Nixon administration. Wow. So (laughs) it was intense and weird and odd and kind of felt out of place. Anyway, he was working on monorails. Wow. (laughs) So So you come from a family of a lot of builders of things. (laughs) Yes. The plan to go back to San Francisco was brought up every school term, end of school term, and then just never happened. Um, I think there was just momentum and, you know, kids and my brother and sister were in school, so we just stayed. But every year it was considered, well, we're moving back this year. So, yes, outside of Washington, D.C., but not really ever feeling like my parents weren't in politics. There was, you know... Sort of always an outsider feeling in in that town. So there's a lot of trips back and forth to New York. I found refuge here. When did you decide you wanted to become a designer? The first aim was ceramicist. I liked building. I liked ceramics for the building aspect of it. And then I liked design for the problem-solving aspect of it. And then I did a summer course at RISD. And I was like, oh, you can do a lot of this if you want. In 1986, you went to RISD
1: full-time, and your first job out of school was a job with Tibor Kalman at Emmon Company in 1991, one of the greatest jobs one could get out of school at that time. How did you get the job with Tibor?
0: I owed all to Scott Stoll. Scott and I were at RISD together, and he said, let's drive to Boston. There's a guy who's doing a lecture. We have to check out And we saw Tibor speak, and it was unlike anything I'd ever seen, obviously. And then he said, I'm going to go work for this guy. I said, okay, how are you going to do that? I'm going to just go. I'm going to intern, then I'm going to work there. So determined Scott did just that. Well, I stayed back and tried to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And I sent Scott a postcard while he was at work. He stuck it on his bulletin board. Tibor saw it and said, what is that? And then he explained it was from... His friend. He said, bring her in. Was it a postcard that you'd made? Yes, it was a postcard um, that I had made a statement about having finished school and trying to figure out what to do. I had written Angst on my mother's back lawn, probably like an acre big, and was lying flat on my face in the middle of the G, and then photographed it from the roof and then sent it out to everyone just to sort of, here's the state of affairs. That's amazing. How did you do that? What kind of, what did you use to make the letters on the lawn? Lime. So it was super white. And it, you know, wouldn't get my mom angry about ruining the grass. So I raked it all in and it actually fertilized it. (laughs) So you were multitasking. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So Tibor saw that. He said, bring her in. I came in, I interviewed, and he just sort of put me to work right away.
1: On your LinkedIn profile, you state that your job title there was Make
0: It Happen. What was the job description for that role? I was doing anything Tibor asked. He would say, I need to make perfume, and I need to package it, and I need to put it in fluffy wrapping that then gets shipped to people. And so it was my job to source all this, and it was pre-Google, so... I had something called the Thomas Register, which was a list of every um, manufacturer. And then I'd have to call these guys one by one and say, can you? Can I get X amount of— So this of- was a real project, a fluffy perfume? Yeah, yeah, perfume. yeah. I mean, it was basically I had to source things. Um, what was the project? What Did now- it ever come to market? Um, that project was one of the Christmas gifts, oh. the perfume, optimism perfume.
1: You worked at Emmin company during a time when there were some extraordinary people working in and coming out of M & Company, who were some of the other people besides Scott that you were working with at that time?
0: At that time, it was smallish. It was Emily Oberman and Scott Stoll. And then Colors Magazine was just starting. So there was a bunch of people kind of on that side of the room working on the magazine. But the M Company side was pretty small. It was just the three of us.
1: What was the biggest thing you learned from t Fuck it up. What was the biggest thing you learned from Emily Oberman? Don't fuck it up. (laughs) You worked at the firm Bureau for two years and then went on to join Emily and her partner Bonnie Siegler in 1995. At the very beginning of their tenure helming number 17, what was that like?
0: It was uh, in Bonnie's apartment (laughs) (laughs) on her bed half the time. It was super fun. It was Small and nerve-wracking and us kind of just having fun. I mean, what was great about Bonnie and Emily is that they were best friends. They wanted to do this. They wanted to hang out. They wanted to make stuff. It didn't really feel like a job so much. Work melded into drinks, melded into dinner, melded into more work, which at the time was really fun. Now I'm maybe too old for that, but it was very invigorating from a kind of a sharing standpoint. There's always something to share. You
1: became the on-air art director at MTV from 1999 to 2001. How did you get that job, and what kind of work did you do there?
0: Well, again, it's people. Uh, My friend Todd St. John was working at MTV, and he said, you know, now's a good time to come over here. Why don't you interview? And it seemed quite foreign because I'd been— this was now 10 years in design firms. And I went, and— started in the on-air department making things that moved, which was, I had done a little bit of that at uh, M & Company and & Bureau and Number 17, but not full-time every day that would be aired to millions of people. So there's a lot of live action projects. So one of them was I recreated Times Square. They really wanted to sort of tell kids around the country that they were located in Times Square. That seemed very glamorous at the time. and. How to make Times Square seem interesting year after year. It was, I think I was the, it was the fourth time they'd done a Times Square look. And so I decided that I would take Times Square and put it in the country. So I made a newsstand, or an art director made a newsstand I was directing, and a subway stop and parking meters and all these queues that were urban, and we put them in the middle of the woods. And then I had to populate the woods with pedestrians. So I called every single person I knew and I said, what are you doing on a cold November morning Tuesday at 4 a.m.? Want to get on a bus and not get paid and come up to the woods and walk around? Get a lot of volunteers? Everyone said yes. (laughs) And so looking back on that shoot, I should pull it out. It's like now famous person here, super famous person there. We had Shepherd Ferry posters. We had Stella Bugbee, the guys at Honest, Lena Boyg, who's now a director. I mean, it was just, you know, now everyone's grown up, but then they were just marching around as extras in this woodsy scene. Let's
1: talk about what you did at Sundance Channel. You went there in 2004, wherein you were charged with forming an in-house creative department, which merged all the creative media and production from short-form content to marketing campaigns. How did you go about doing that? How did you create an in-house function?
0: Well, it was really fun because it was it was a pretty easy project to do for a few reasons. It's a small channel, so I didn't have to build a very big team. Sundance has no ratings, so no one was pressuring me about what we made. We just made fun stuff. But what I did do is budgets were fairly small, and what I liked doing was figuring out how to economize all the pieces. So Since it was a small in-house team, everyone had to be good at everything. One person was Bill Zimmer, who came from MTV. So he could animate, he could design, he really could write. He was an extremely funny writer. Another one was Dimitri Siegel, who was my student. So I brought him straight from school. And then the third slot was Carol Hayes. Carol was at Little Brown at the time. I said, let's work 90% of the time, and the other 10%, you guys get to make stuff. I'll give you small budgets, but you get to make whatever you want, and we'll air it. It was fantastic. So everyone got to make short films and um, little editorial pieces. I got a lot of my students to make work. And it was just sort of this, like, free airtime and free space to sort of be expressive, and I could totally legitimize it because I'm like, this is independent film. This is, like, people making stuff. This is what this is all about. Let's talk about some of the projects that you've helmed.
1: In 2010, you began working at Johnson & Wolverton, a brand consultancy. And while you were there, you rebranded several networks, including Comedy Central. And I'd love to talk to you about that. On your website, you state, Comedy Central, like many networks, had fallen victim to their own successful programming. The Daily Show, The Colbert Report, South Park becoming stronger brands themselves than the network that houses them. The solution was to create a branding system that could live with the content, not around it. And you go on to state that the client directive was this, don't change the logo. But that's what you did. You changed the logo.
0: Why? How did this all happen? We went in with this pitch, which was really oddball. It was, now it's pretty commonplace where you make a reel and the reel sort of explains the branding. In fact, everyone does it. But at the time, no one was doing it. And we went in there and we played this tape and the room went silent and we didn't know what, like, are we fired? Or are you going to ask us to leave? And they basically said, we're canceling all the rest of the pitches. Wow. You're, you got it.
1: When I was doing my research on you for the show, I came across a note that Comedy Central had I think put on their website when the logo changed and I'd like to read that because I think it's first of all hysterical and second of all it's it's really indicative of what you were able to get them to do before you start I'm going to predict that this is something Kiffer wrote okay well let's see if it is it starts out we should explain our logo has changed no longer do you see the big buildings and globe that quite literally said Comedy Central on top of it. Please welcome the new mark. We affectionately call it the Comedy Mark. It works way fucking better than the other one we had. Big buildingy globe. You served us well, but we moved on. Thanks, Comedy Central. <laughs> All kiffer, it's so good. And and did it did it keep the um,
0: design critiques to a minimum when the logo was first launched? There was a sensibility to how we were sound designing. There was a sensibility to how we were editing. This was all around just making the logo do do the thing that we wanted it to do, which is be a sidecar to their content. So while I'd like to say, yes, that's the thing that said, yeah, you got the deal, I'm not even sure they could read that in the, in the thing that we showed them. We just were making—we made so much content that we played in this two-minute reel that, you know, these all became fodder for later materials. And the, you know, the idea was then they were going to make—we did say, like, you should launch with this piece of writing, which they did— And so that was just one of many pieces. But it definitely was the thing I was like, hey, okay. And then Kiffer and I, like, both went our separate ways when that project and that job ended. We kept kind of finding each other back in our professional spheres. And then kind of by accident, like, you know, finding an old lover or something, we're like, hey, we should get together and see if that works. And so we did a test job together, like, okay, well, let's date and see how that goes. What was that job? the New York Times uh, video branding. So um, we said, okay, fine. We're going to put up a website. We're going to put this on it. We're going to say we're a company. What's our name? So that was like the day before we launched our website. We, you know, bought the URL and called ourselves Work Order.
1: And I want to talk about that in a moment. Before we talk about Work Order, though, I have to ask you about one project at the New York Times, and that is your work with Bill Cunningham. Um, Bill Cunningham being, of course, the extraordinary fashion photographer of the New York Times. You worked on the film Bill Cunningham, New York, and you created film titles and over 80 animated sequences that really brought the documentary to life. Talk about working with Bill Cunningham and, and working on this movie.
0: Of course, there's a certain crowd that knew of him, and of course, there's some New Yorkers who knew the guy in the blue coat, but he was certainly not a name. I mean, you look at Sunday Styles and you see Bill Cunningham, the byline, but you never put it together with that there's this person out there who's as special as Bill was. And the filmmakers, one was the photo editor at the Times, and so he had a relationship with Bill, and he knew how special he was, and he said, you know, people have to know about him. And his crazy archives. I mean, that was part of the story, too, was just the filing cabinets full of negatives. So they were following. They were literally sort of stalking following him and made a trailer. And um, and then I got the call. And um, the project was originally billed as, yeah, we need 8 to 10 sequences of <laughs> images. And you write it up to 80. Which, no, they did. <laughs> okay. It was, you know, six weeks of work, 8 to 10 Sequences became a year and a half and 80 sequences, as documentaries do. They go long. They become you. So Bill was really, you know, besides being the subject of the movie, he was really divorced from the process of the movie. And I knew that about him. And I knew that he wouldn't want to review any of the material. So all I did was look at it from the, like what it was just the classic, like, what would Bill do? Like, it wouldn't be slick. It would be kind of guttural. You know, the edges wouldn't be smooth. They'd be kind of like cropped funny and staccato, like his personality and his voice and everything is very his staccato. Voice, yeah. So it became this sort of frenzy of how he is, like out on the street and, and bopping and weaving and on his bike. So it was, you know, as homage as you can be. It's just like, what would Bill do? And he never saw the movie. He didn't? No. He went to the premiere, took pictures of people at the opening in the lobby and left. Why? Because he's not that guy, you know? He wants to be invisible. He wants to, like, be behind the camera. So he never saw the movie. And, you know, then he got what happens with documentaries, and he was sort of famous, and he's like, well, now everyone's looking at me, and now I'm not invisible. So it had that kind of oddness, but I'm so happy that it exists as this document of him. It's a radiant film. Yeah, it was an honor to do. It was really
1: fun. Now let's talk about Work Order. In 2014, you started a more creative partnership with Kiffer Keegan and launched your firm Work Order. One of your first projects out of the gate is the redesign of one of the world's greatest icons. The Kodak brand. (laughs) So um, you said you got this job because a friend of yours that you went to college with recommended you, or worked there, or something like that. So none of your other prior success had anything to do with it. Um, But I do want to read something that uh, Stephen Overman, who's Kodak's chief marketing officer, said about what you were trying to do with the project. And he says, "I don't think of what we're doing as bringing back the iconic identity of Kodak because in people's hearts and minds, I don't think it really went away. It's simply logical to keep one of the world's most famous
0: brand marks at the forefront
1: of the company's image and identity.
0: So Stephen Overman, as you just quoted, is my college friend. One of my closest friends. I've gone on road trips with him. I think we've been in our underwear together. So here he is with this powerful job, and he has a lot to solve. There they are, a bankrupt company with a huge pedigree And not a lot of resources. So he has to kind of hit the ground running looking from a hundred different angles. The logo was just, and that's kind of what I like about projects like this. The logo is just like one tiny project in his hundreds of things to solve. It's not the thing to solve. It's just one one piece. And we did it really quickly and quietly because he needed to work on those other hundred things that would help. Justify why they were doing this, so it didn't just seem like you know emperor's clothes kind of situation. So the motivation was you know right away thinking, well, they had this beautiful logo, the Kodak K shape. That's also you know it's a motive and it's a light emanating, it's a camera, it's it's all kinds of things. And some I think in the last iteration of the logo, they got the company decided. Uh, They didn't want any of those things. They didn't want old technology. And what Stephen and his president of Kodak, Jeff Clark, and his team decided was, you know, we do need those things. We need those things in our lives. We need the things that Kodak also does that are, you know, business propositions. Film might not be that for them, but they want to preserve this sort of legacy. So they saw this as a company agenda, that they wanted to keep film alive and, and a million other things. So there was motivation, not only that we liked the sort of 70s, 80s Kodak K, but it was also a signal to, like, grounding them again. We took out the Kodak wordmark inside And realized that if we stacked the letters, you know, the logo naturally points to it. It naturally becomes sprockets. It becomes like a sign. It sort of has that vernacular. It has an abstraction because they're stacked. And again, it was meant to be very subtle. It was meant to be just like, this is a quiet move on a very powerful logo. You know, as they release products, they're going to put it on. As they need signage, they'll put it on. It's not a big unveiling. They're not a company that can afford to do something like that. There's no reason for them to do that. They're just going to, like, let it unfold and start being in the ecosystem. Kira, the last thing I want to talk to you about is your festival. In
1: 2015, you founded an experiential art and music festival you named Day for Night And you've said that your motivation was simple, to make a better festival, and set out to make sound as visual as possible, and in return, make visual art sonic. How did you go about putting together a festival? Uh,
0: Naively. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, we have great partners who approached us and said, you know, let's mix it up depending on which day it is, they may have regrets asking us to do this, but we just kind of push, 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 push against things to say, how can, we, how can we enrich this environment? I mean, and we did it really selfishly. It's what did we want out of the experience? So we wanted freedom, we wanted roaming, we wanted exploratory experiences, we wanted to mash up audio experiences against visual ones. It's like doing a really good high school prom. It's like <laughs> you pick a theme and you just like, I'm going to get the best streamers and balloons available and I'm going to paint them in weird color. Like you just get to do something and you think of it and, and you make it real. Last year's festival included Kendrick Lamar, New Order.
1: Philip Glass Ensemble, Coco Rosie, and over 50 other bands and artists. How do you go about getting these people to come to the festival?
0: You ask, and then you ask again and again and again. And what's great is um, we pulled it off the first year, and we actually got really good feedback from the industry, and now people are approaching us and saying, we want to be a part of this. Our headliner this year is Aphex Twin, which was a a real get, and we got the coolest kid on the block, and everyone's like, how did you get him to come to your party? (laughs) A lot of nice streamers. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of good balloons. Now, I
1: read that the festival environment was specifically designed around the merging of technology and sound and how audiences experience them. Could you give me some examples of how you've gone about doing that?
0: So most of our artists are either doing interactive work. We have some VR work this year. We have, you know, there's a lot of coding artists. You know, what? I guess the thing we want to avoid is eye candy. We want there to be a reason for the the making of these things. And audio is not a decoration to the visuals. And same for the musicians. Like each one of these musicians is doing something different. And we liked the idea of sort of like, again, it's the budding up idea. Like this, having Philip Glass play right after Battles next to New Order, next to Psychic TV. I mean, the idea of all these, it's not a genre of music. It's the idea of bare-naked performances.
1: Last year's two day event was so powerful, critics deemed it the festival of the future. And you are returning to Houston, where you launched last year on December 17th and 18th. How can people buy tickets to the festival?
0: They can go to dayfornight.io. And if you really want to get right to the tickets page, go slash tickets. But if you go to the website, dayfornight.io, the lineup is there. There's videos from last year, so you can kind of get a taste and a flavor of what we did and what it's like to be there.
1: Well, thank you for doing it. It is wonderful and noble work. Kira, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today, and congratulations on all of your many varied and wonderful successes. Thanks, Debbie. You can find out more about Kira Alexandra and her work on the website for Work Order. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes
1: store.